Have you ever been betrayed by someone you thought you could trust? Have you ever been stabbed in the back by a close friend? Maybe it was a family member, a relative. Maybe it was a mentor. How did that betrayal affect your relationship with other people? After that betrayal, did you start building up walls saying, I'm never wanting to experience that hurt again? Maybe you've healed from it. How did you heal from that? Do you still carry resentment and anger from that betrayal? Maybe you thought you got over it and then somebody brought something up and it just sparked those wounds, just opened those wounds right back up. And you're like, man, I thought I was over this, but I'm still pretty bitter. Have you ever let anyone close to you again? How can we handle the hurt of betrayal? That is what we will talk about today as we jump back into our series, Summer in the Psalms. We're up to Psalm 109, which is a difficult psalm to handle, and you'll see why in a little bit if you're not familiar with Psalm 109. It's a little bit longer, so we're not going to read through it. We're just going to jump right in. It, be, it starts off with another header, to the choir master, a psalm of David. So we've got another psalm of David. We know that the header gives the authorship to David, but we don't know what the circumstance is. We, there's a lot of theologians that have made guesses, but I'm just going to say we don't know what the circumstance is surrounding this psalm. We don't know who the attackers are. So we do know that he says that they, he, he points out that he's being attacked, we don't know who the attackers are. There's a few times through Scripture that we see David attacked, so we can kind of narrow it down, but we're still not entirely sure who the attackers are. But it is interesting to me that it was a psalm of David, which is called an imprecatory psalm, not an impurgatory psalm, but an imprecatory psalm. That means that it is a psalm that is asking God to curse someone. So this is why it's a little bit of a confusing psalm, and for some people it gets a little awkward when you read a psalm, I mean, we read the Sermon on the Mount, and we read different places where Jesus talks about loving your enemy, and you're like, wait a second, what about where David starts calling out curses on other people? So we want to get into that today. It'll be a little bit awkward, but, but it's interesting to me that it is an impurgatory psalm. It's a psalm where David is asking God to curse an enemy, but it was also given to the choir master. David wrote it out, and he gave it to the choir master, meaning that it was used in some form of worship at the temple. So that makes it even more awkward, right? That, that this psalm, where David is going to curse his enemy, is also going to be worshipped at, or used at the temple for worship. So there has been much debate about how it was used. You can read an endless amount of commentaries and papers on how this psalm was used in the temple and how it, could it be godly to ask God to curse someone. I think the best way for us to understand this is to actually study it. So let's go ahead and dig in. Verse 1 starts with, Be not silent, O God of my praise. So verse 1, this, this really just means like, Hey God, I've, I've called out to you before, and you've answered my prayer. You have been active on my behalf before, and I'm going to act, ask you to do it again. Based on God's previous action or activity, the psalmist David is act, asking God to act again. Next, David will get into the reasons why he needs God to act again. For the wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me. 
speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. So whoever is attacking David is attacking David with words. They are words of hate. Their mouths are speaking lies about King David. They are trying to malign his character. They are using words to destroy him. These people know the power of words and know that they can get their way through manipulation with words. So often we are told that words don't hurt. But that is simply not true. Words can hurt. Words help shape us. Words shape the way we think. Words can even shape a culture. That is why there is a battle over words. Because language shape how we think and can actually influence the way we think. Thus, words are incredibly important. The words you use are incredibly important. How you speak to others is incredibly important. So it's important for us to be grounded in God's word. If words are important, if words shape the way we think, then if we want a worldview that aligns with God's worldview, we should be in God's word so that we are letting God's word shape the way we think. So everywhere we look, there are people in rebellion against God trying to use words to manipulate the way you think. Being rooted in God's word helps keep you grounded in how to think. On a more personal note, there are people in your life that will use words to hurt you. There are people in your life that will use words to manipulate you. The best way to heal from the hurtful words is to study God's word. And remind yourself of who he says you are. Then in Ephesians 2.10, he says that you are his original masterpiece. An original artwork of his. So when people start to say that you're nothing but dirt. That you don't belong here. You can go back to God's word and remind yourself of who he says you are. Your creator knows you better than any human. Trust his voice. Trust his words over anyone else's. So they're using words to malign his character. They're using words to attack him. And in verse 4 he picks up, In return for my love, they accuse me. But I give myself to prayer. So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Here we see that the attackers are people that he loved. People that he helped. People that he prayed for. People that he would expect to be a close friend or maybe even a relative. But instead of loving him back, they attack him. Oftentimes, these are the worst attacks. An aggressive driver on the road that gives me an unpleasant hand signal, I can write them off pretty easily. I've forgotten them by the next block. A random person on social media, no big deal. I just hide them forever. 
but a person I've poured a large amount of my life into to help. When they attack, it has a special kind of sting. One of my first mentors in the church was a man that I knew almost my entire life. He sang my praises quite a bit. He told me what a great guy I was. But then one day, something happened. I don't know what it was. I have my theories. He's never explained it to me. But he turned on me. And instead of singing my praises, he began to malign my character. He began to badmouth me to everyone possible. He even started a rumor that he planted with me to see if there was a rumor mill that I was spreading around the church about him. When confronted, he just lied. It got so bad, I was, I was actually best friends with his son. And it got so bad that when his son pulled me aside and was like, what's going on between you and my dad? I explained it all to him. I didn't want to hold back because it was his son and I trusted him. And his son looked at me and goes, he's just got to have Alzheimer's now. Like, my dad must just be going crazy. Because he couldn't confront the fact that his dad had become like this. He couldn't confront the fact that his dad was spreading rumors and lying about his best friend. It hurt. It was at a point where I thought, man, I'd never step back into a church. I'm never going to go back to church. I'm done with it. It is a hurt that if you have experienced, you know that it is painful. You know that it can actually start to shape the way you think and the way you live. So this is the type of hurt that he has experienced. And this kind of attack can begin to produce walls in our life. We know that we don't want that kind of pain, so we don't open up. We know the sting of that pain, so we don't let those people get close again. So we don't let anyone get close again. Those of you who have been betrayed by a spouse, a parent, a best friend, a child, maybe you've had an experience like me and you were betrayed by someone in the church. You know how bad this feels. You know the pain well. And you know the temptation to shut down. I think this psalm gives us an encouragement not to shut down, not to build those walls back up. The line, but I am in prayer, I think gives us this idea. To trust God instead of building up those walls. To trust God instead of trusting man. Instead of taking revenge out ourselves and making them pay, to trust God. To bring it to God and let him settle it. That takes a lot of trust. So David's going to make an appeal to God, and he's going to trust him with it. Starting in verse 6 and going all the way through verse 20, David will give his appeal. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. So David's appeal begins with kind of like a courtroom setting. 
The term stand at his right hand is a reference to legal counsel. David is asking God to appoint the defendant, his accuser, his attacker, with a wicked counselor. So instead of getting a good defense, the accuser of David's will actually be accused. He's asking for the one who has attacked, who has attacked him to get the same treatment that David is getting. In verse 7, David is asking that the attacker would be found guilty. And why would he be found guilty? Because he is evil. The next line reveals how evil he is. Even his prayers should be counted as sin. Even when he looks like he's pursuing God, it's for his own selfish gain. He thinks God is someone that can be manipulated just like other humans. He's made a habit of manipulating other human beings, so he views God as someone else that he can manipulate. So he goes to God to try to manipulate God all for his own selfish gain. So his prayer isn't even really a a petition. His prayer isn't even really saying, hey, I rely on God, I need to submit to God. His prayer is just saying, let me manipulate him all the more. So the attacker only cares about himself. He has no fear of God and no worry about judgment. He continues his petition. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife be a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. So this is where it begins to get a little awkward, right? Because this attacker is guilty, David asks that someone else take his office. So removing the attacker from office reveals that this person is is someone in a position of authority. This makes a lot of people think that it's actually Absalom, David's son, that that the circumstance surrounds. And David is asking God to remove the authority from this person who should not be trusted with authority. This person doesn't care about the community. This this person doesn't care about what's best for the community. This person only cares about himself. Therefore, this person should not have any authority within the community. The way the attacker would be removed from office is by his own death. Verses 9 and 10 make that very plain. The only way for his children to be fatherless and his wife to be a widow is if he died. So David is plainly asking for this man's death. And if that wasn't awkward enough, verse 10 gets very uncomfortable when David asks that his children wonder and beg, seeking far food far from the ruins they inhabit. So this goes beyond just the man's death, but now it seems like David's asking that even his children would be afflicted, that his children would be homeless, scavenging for food. And there are a lot of different ways theologians deal with this. I think the best that I've read is that David doesn't really want the children to be homeless beggars, but that he is using language that shows how much he desires the attacker to be punished how much he desires the attacker to be finally cut off. The kids having to seek food from far, far from the ruins gives us a hint that it is what, that this is what David is doing. Because David wants this man to die, and beyond that, that this man would lose everything. The creditors would take his house, that even his reputation would be gone. 
We see this in verse 11. So the punishment is so devastating that all connected will feel the effect. Not that God is punishing them, but when someone is connected with someone who is in sin, you will feel the effects of their sin. For example, if I was to go speeding in my car, and I got in a car accident, and my kids were in the car with me, now my kids wouldn't be the ones to blame, God would not be disciplining my kids, but my kids would still feel the effect of my sin. I think that's what's going on here. Is David saying, punish this man so thoroughly that everyone around would feel the effects. So my kids would feel the bumps and the bruises. They might not want to get in a car for a while. They would feel the effects of my sin. And David is saying, this man is so brazenly evil and wicked that everyone associated with him should feel this effect. I think one of the biggest takeaways for us in this is that our sin always has greater effect than we realize. Our sin will always affect more people than we realize. We always think it's okay for me to sin as long as it doesn't affect anyone else. And sometimes we, we get this like little pet sin of ours and we just hold it tight and we think that this sin isn't affecting anyone and it's okay, I'm not really hurting anyone. Anytime you are in sin, anytime you sin, anytime you're in rebellion against God, it is affecting other people around you. And you may not even realize it. But sin never affects just the person. It affects the person and all those around them. It has a far greater impact than you can ever imagine. And I think that's what David's getting at here. I think he's showing that that this person's sin has a far greater impact. And he's saying, God, reveal this. Reveal this impact. He continues on, May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be no one to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. So now we see Oops, sorry. I made a mistake here. I'm jumping ahead of myself. So in verses, oh man, I've lost all my notes. We're into verse 15, right? Anyways, I'll continue on and get through this awkwardness somehow. Or I won't. Uh, I'll just make it even more awkward. We're good. I'm good at making things awkward, right? Anyways, we see that the, uh, that the creditor has seized all he has, so he's asking for this guy to, to uh, feel the full effect of his sin, that he's just asking, he's pleading with God that this guy would, this attacker would feel the full effect of his sin. The posterity being cut off means that he wants his family line to end, 
that this man is so wicked and so evil that, that just as God had taken out entire people groups because their sin was so wicked and so evil, that the same thing should be happening to this man. And we see that throughout the book of Judges, the conquest. And we talked a little bit about this last week, is that you know, in the, the book of Judges and the conquest, God gave these people 400 years, the Canaanites, 400 years to repent. And yet they continued in their wickedness, they continued in their evilness, and so God said, it is time, it is time to cut you off so that your wickedness can no longer impact the rest of the world. That's what David is pleading with God for here. He's saying this man is so wicked, this attacker is so evil, quit letting this guy have an influence on the world. That's the point that he's trying to drive home here. And then he picks it up in verse 16, and he, he, he switches a little bit. It's still this appeal. It's still the plea. But he is now kind of outlining why he wants them, why, why this man is so awful. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse, let curses Come upon him. He did not delight in blessings, may it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat, may it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones, may it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord of those who speak evil against my life. So once again, I don't think that this is a model prayer that he's asking for. Uh, I, sometimes we read this and we think, maybe this is a model prayer, maybe this is what this guy is asking for. I don't think that this is a model prayer. I don't think that's what David was getting at. When he penned this, I don't think he was thinking, man, I think people should just model this prayer all the time. I think that people should just constantly be asking God to curse others. I don't think that's what he's getting at. But I think the point that he wants us to take home is that it's okay to express that you're hurt. It's okay to spill your guts to God. It's okay to say, I'm having a really bad day. Or maybe I'm having worse than a bad day. It's okay to say, God, I'm really struggling here. So often in Christian culture, we get caught up with thinking in order to be a good witness, we have to put on a smiley face. In order to be a good witness, you can't ever have a bad day. You can't ever really say, you know what, I'm really struggling right now. You can't ever let people know that you're hurt or tired or worn out. And this psalm shows that we can. And it's actually healthy to take these attitudes to God. To spill your guts out. This life is not all roses and fairy tales. In life there is hurt and there is pain, and sometimes we just cry out to God. So he cries out to God, and he gives why this guy deserves all of these curses that he's asked God for. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted, put them to death. So it wasn't like 
this guy just got in an argument with King David. It wasn't like he just got a, a little bit offended. This guy was so wicked. It wasn't even like he just ignored the poor. You know, he, he was really good at just walking down the street and keeping his eyes up. It wasn't even that. This guy was so wicked that he pursued the poor, and he pursued the needy, and he pursued the brokenhearted. And why did he pursue them? To put them to death. He was a murderer. He was a killer. And he loved to kill. So David asks for all these curses because this guy was so wicked. This guy was so evil. And he was so offensive toward God. He was willing to manipulate. He was willing to do whatever it took so that he could remain in power. And that's all this man cared about was his own power. And not only did he do that, but he loved to curse. So let the curses come upon him. So this guy loved to curse so much that that's kind of what he became. He, he, uh, David's saying he clothed himself with cursing at his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. So he loved to curse He loved to curse, and so because he loved to curse so much, it kind of became a part of who he was. Now what's really interesting, or what's ironic, is that David just finished a long line of curses, right? He finished a long line of curses towards the attacker. A curse is appealing to God to inflict injury upon someone. Appealing to God to inflict injury upon someone. David just did that. So what's the difference? How can one be okay and not the other? And I think the difference is the attacker only knows how to curse. The attacker does not know how to bless. To bless is to appeal to God to favor someone. To appeal to God to show someone favor. The attacker is so entrenched in cursing and wishing harm to others that blessings do not even come close to him. He can't even think in terms of blessing others. I think this is a great warning for us. It's easy to see David write a song about cursing the wicked and think, maybe we should pick this up and do the same. Once again, this is not an example prayer. When Jesus was teaching how to pray, he didn't quote Psalm 109. This is David so frustrated with the success of the wicked that he is bringing it before God. And he'll leave it there. And I think that's one of the points of this psalm. Is that when you see the wicked and you're frustrated with wickedness, bring it before God. And our warning is to bring it before God. That we might bring it before God, but we might not leave it before God. We might become comfortable with wishing harm on others. It's okay to be angry with the injustice of the world. It's okay to bring it to God. 
but make sure you leave it with God and trust it with God, not to continually bring it back up. To not continually find people to curse or not continually curse that same person over and over and over again. And every time you think about it, all you want to do is send a curse on that person. When we do that, we become like this attacker. And it is very easy for bitter, to let bitterness creep into our heart and for us to become like the attacker. So I talked about that one guy who was a mentor of mine, who knew me my whole life. That one day he began to badmouth me to everyone. I can't tell you how much I just wanted to fight back. Oh, I had a lot of dirt on him. I mean, he did a lot of foolish things. I could have very easily started to spread rumors. I very easily could have been gossiping. I very easily could have told all of his dirt, because I knew his dirt. I was best friends with his son. His son spilled a lot of dirt to me throughout the years. I could have gone through, told everyone what a horrible guy this was. And man, did I want to. That was my desire. But I had another mentor of mine, another pastor mentor of mine, who said, Aaron, there's two things you need to do. One is, you need to leave that church. If you don't leave that church, you're going to cause a devastating church split. So you need to leave that church. And two is, you need to leave quietly. As he badmouths you, you let God be your defender. And you leave the church quietly. I hated that advice. I'm just going to be very honest. I hated that advice. I wanted to stand up from the pulpit and spill all the beans. But I didn't. And I look back, and I'm so glad I took that man's advice. Because I, through that process, I have come here. I got to go to Cheyenne for a while and, and meet wonderful people and be mentored by a wonderful pastor. God opened a whole new door of opportunities, but most importantly, I think if I had started bad-mouthing and started fighting back, I would have let bitterness creep in. I still am friends with other people that attend that church, and every now and then I hear a report that they're still bad-mouthing me, that they're still talking trash about me been like 13 years, man. I'll be honest with you, I've let it go. It doesn't affect me at all anymore. I can kind of laugh about it. And I can do that because I followed that other pastor's advice. When we begin to badmouth back, when we begin to start cursing and just let cursing take over, then bitterness takes over and we become exactly like that wicked attacker. So I think that's one of the main points of this psalm, is that you bring it to God, 
It's okay to feel hurt. It's okay to feel frustrated. We see wickedness succeeding all the time, and it's okay to be angry about it. But we bring it to God, and then we let it go. And instead of being focused on the attacker, we can be more focused on God and what God is going to do for us. So he continues on. And I think verse 21 is really a turning point in this chapter. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Because your steadfast love is good, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. And so we see here that David is describing himself as absolutely despised and dejected and downhearted. This term, uh, I am like a shadow at evening uh, in antiquity, but we see it all the time too. Now, we, we don't catch on to it as much because we have lights at evening, right? So as, as the sun begins to set, we go inside, we turn on our lights. But every night, as the sun began to set... They would see their shadows stretch out before them, and they would see their shadows eventually disappear. And that's what he's getting at, is when he's saying that he's like a shadow at evening, he's saying he's being stretched out, and he's fading quickly. He's almost gone. When he says that he's shaken off like a locust, in those days they didn't have pesticides. So when locusts would come, one way that you might try to save your crops is you'd go out and you'd shake your crops. And when you'd shake your crops, the locusts would fall off, And who cares about that locust that fell off, right? It's totally disregarded. It is totally useless. It's gone. You don't care about it anymore. So what he's saying is that he's like this locust. He was on this crop and someone came and he shook him off and he's gone. He's disregarded. He's nothing. And it's affected him so much that it has affected his physical body. Stress can affect our physical bodies. So he's been through it so much that his knees are weak through fasting. He's been fasting, and so that has also made him become skinny, that he has no fat. And when he walks around, the object, uh, he's the object of scorn. And they wag their head at him. But 21 is a turning point. But you, O oh God my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake. Because your steadfast love is good. Deliver me. This is a contrasting conjunction. And what he's doing is he's contrasting how God treats him versus how his accusers treat him. He is is wearing thin. He's totally disregarded. But yet God still has his back. And so in verse 26, he picks up, Help me, O Lord, my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse you. Or sorry, let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. So here he is. He's crying out, and we've got that contrast still, right? So so even though they're stretching him out, though they're disregarding him like locusts, though they're wagging their head, God is going to deal with him on his behalf. God is going to have his back. And so, verse 28 is one of those pivotal lines as well. 
Let them curse, but you will bless. That we should care more about what God thinks, more about God's action than man's. In this world, there are going to be all kinds of people that curse you. All kinds of people that are just going to hate you for whatever reason. Let them curse. Because we know who God is. Let them curse because we know God and we know that God will bless. And even His blessing, sometimes it doesn't feel like a blessing, right? But yet we know that we can trust God in it all. And we know that in the end, His blessing is far better. May my accusers be clothed with this honor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. With my mouth I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise Him in the midst of the throng, for He stands at the right hand of the needy one to save Him from those who condemn Him to life. So David is going to praise God. Just as we learned that the accuser has someone staying at the right hand, right? He he called in this courtroom setting, he called for the attacker to have as his legal counsel a wicked man. Now he's calling for legal counsel for himself. And who is he calling for his own legal counsel? God. Because God will stand at his right hand. So God is going to be his defense. He doesn't need to be his own defense. He knows God will put up defense. You don't need to be your defense. When those people are bad-mouthing you and spreading rumors all around, sometimes you're actually playing into their hands when you bad-mouth back. But when you trust God, and God is changing you, and you have a character that is aligned with what God has called you to, that will defend you. I can remember my dad was a diesel mechanic. And I didn't get to spend a lot of time with my dad as a kid, but uh, every now and then I'd get to go to his shop. And there was this one biker guy that would come every now and then. He was this, uh, he was a bad guy. I'll just put it that way. He was a bad guy. He was one of those guys I remember, I, uh, I, I, my dad let me grease trucks. So I got paid $5 to grease every truck. And I would grease, I was under his truck once greasing it. And I rolled out and this guy, he had, a, he had this wife. I won't get into all details. Anyways, he was a bad guy. That's, that's what you can know. But he looked at me and he said, if you mess up my truck, I'm going to drag you behind it for miles until your parents can't recognize you. That's, that's the kind of guy he was. And, and he made those threats often. But anyways, he comes up to my dad and he says, you know, Frank, this other mechanic over down the way, he's bad-mouthing you. He's telling everybody that you don't know what you're doing. And my dad looked at him and he goes, I don't care. You like my work? The guy said, yeah, but you got to do something about this. You got to go to that guy's place and you got to stand up for yourself. And my dad just looked at him and said, my work stands up for me. I don't need to say anything. And that's the way I feel about this. It's so tempting when the wicked person begins to spread rumors and to badmouth you. It's so tempting to fight back. But with God as your legal counsel and you being molded and shaped by God, you can look and you can say, 
my character stands. I don't need to continually go back and, and describe to people why I was right. I don't need to continually go back and defend myself. I have an audience of one, and that audience is God. And as long as he's satisfied with my obedience to him, then the rest is rubbish. So David is declaring that God is his counselor, that God is going to set his direction. And for that reason, David is going to praise God. Not just praise God, but give him great thanks. Because although he is hurt, and although he is wounded, and people have turned their backs on him, he knows God will never turn his back on him. He knows God is a place of refuge for him. He knows that he can trust God even if the world seems like they have turned their back on him. He can stand in front of God and know that that relationship is still whole. Have you ever felt the sting of betrayal? Maybe it was a parent or spouse. Maybe it was a child, a friend, someone in the church, someone you thought you could trust, and they just stabbed you in the back. Our temptation is to turn around, put up our dukes, and fight. But that will only lead to bitterness. The lesson I think we can learn from this psalm and I think the point that all of Israel was learning from this is when betrayal hits and hurts, we can trust God. We can trust that he will never betray, that he is faithful and he is true. And in your hurt, you can turn toward him and he can heal and restore your heart. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this psalm that sometimes seems awkward, sometimes seems difficult to understand, and yet it is, it is an example of how we can deal with pain. Because every single one of us will be betrayed at some point. Every single one of us will struggle with a close person, a person that we trusted, stabbing us in the back and hurting us like no hurt we've ever felt. And yet, in the midst of all of that, we can trust you. And we praise you for that. In your name we pray. Amen.